motherfucker. <laughs> Stop telling me to do things. So today on the popular show, we have author, raconteur, uh, regular, just bon vivant, uh, Rax King, um, DC native, but uh, a rootless cosmopolitan that we like in, in our sort of. <laughs> in our Are sort you of... calling me a Jew? <laughs> <laughs> Honey, today we're all Jews. That's right. <laughs> but... I literally am a Jew. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, as someone who's frequently uh, mistaken and has passed, I, when I lived in Washington, DC, I would often get invited to. Rosh Hashanah or any of the high holidays and uh, they were like oh you're you're lost you don't have anybody and I would go <laughs> and I would go and like now you know I've like you know I have a favorite Haggadah so you know here I am so <laughs> Jewish holidays are pretty lit like, oh if man you get on that racket then you're just you're uh, gonna be eating good for the rest of your life I actually um like gefilte fish which is weird uh you know I've uh I had I had a so like the, there's a thing in Eastern European culture about sort of homemade liquors where they say you know oh Everybody's particularly in the Balkans are like Rakia. Rakia is this, this uh, apricot flavored sort of brandy. Um, it's never good, but everybody says, you know, <laughs> mine is a no, 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 you haven't had mine. And I think right. filter fish is a bit like that as well. But uh, it is, except the bitch of it is like most of us just use the stuff out of the jar anyway. Yeah. And then we act like it's. You know, it's only good at my house when you eat the gefilte fish at yeah. my house that I scooped out of a jar. Yeah. Like, it's really not good, but I I like it too. But I well, I mean, there's that. a there's a Toll House cookies haggadah. You know, like it's it's right. Just, <laughs> I mean, it's it's the the you know sort of what what Americans think about the Jewish experience is like it's like a hyper realized American experience in a, in in a way that is exceptional, and I think that that's uh, I find that interesting as well. You know, yeah, but we've really I, leaned into that perception too. <laughs> many of us. So, you know, I, one of the things I want to say about your book, so your book is called Tacky Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer, Rex King. But the the general thesis is that the worst aspects of our culture are actually not that bad. And I, I think that that's quite beautiful. I, I, I found I'm taking a trip back to my hometown in rural Pennsylvania um, after being gone for two years because of COVID and immigration issues in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. I found your book to be sort of a high art way of re-engaging with my friends who have low culture tastes. And I thought that that was in my way um, more healing than Hillbilly Elegy or any of these other books that we're supposed to read and feel some sort of, you know, social remorse for our position vis-a-vis our our peers. And uh, I thought that was wonderful. I love just, I really want as a blurb, this book is better than Hillbilly Elegy. I feel That really speaks to the spirit. Of oh no! I actually I, I pitched a review of your book already to uh, to uh, Spliced. It's just a small site, but yeah. I want to do a little bit one for them because I, I just think it's it, just for fun because I love it so much. Um, one Thank thing you. I really loved about the book, uh, and it, you know, for the readers who have not, I mean, listeners who have not read it yet, uh, and you must go. It is on pre order right now. Um, uh, it's out now, actually. It is As out. of it's, yesterday, it is officially in the world at your oh, bookstore, maybe. Well, that's lovely. It's a, it's a beautiful book. It's got uh, it's got sort of like a Barbie type character, uh, sort of in a two girls one cup situation or a one girl one cup situation <laughs> in a martini. It's the 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 visual of the of the book is very is very aesthetically beautiful. It has this sort of like sixties sort of like um, uh, I want I want to say sort of almost Italian sort of like uh, vibe to it. I thought it was very beautiful. Um, but the the great thing about the book is that. 
it takes you in these really discrete chunks, uh, talking through um, things that you, particularly people, if you're in your sort of, if you're a elder millennial or, or in that era, you're going to have sort of a sense of feeling bad about feeling bad about your culture. And I think that that's, you like give people permission to like what they like. So can you talk a little bit about your discussion of creed? I thought that was a, a really great discussion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just like as a, I guess, forward, so to speak, I think that my thesis is less like, yeah, fuck it, go forth and like what you like. Because I, I do think there are some very popular, very quote unquote, lowbrow franchises that are doing harm. Like I feel that way at this point about the Marvel movies, the fucking MCU or whatever. Correct. If, <laughs> I, I think that people get defensive about liking stuff like that. And I think that's really worth interrogating, like why you're so defensive about something that is such flagrant military propaganda. But most of the stuff I talk about, and Creed in particular, is stuff that was A, wildly popular, B, largely considered like beneath critical contempt at the time, and C, really enjoyable in a way that feels very harmless to me. Like I don't ever want to veer off into anti-intellectualism, but at the same time, I think that our instinct to shit on stuff primarily because it's popular, I think that instinct does a lot of real harm like to us internally, it's, it's corrosive. Mm -hmm. I think that the um, there's a, a tendency in American political culture, and I'm going to bring this back to culture, culture, real culture uh, in American political culture to, to see sort of economic things as being like, if someone gets something that's taking away from me. And I think the one mistake that sort of people on sort of, I would I don't, left this is like, what does it mean? What does that even mean? But but people are sort of view themselves as as like above the the popular culture. They really view people enjoying things as being taken away from them in some weird way. And they think, well, if Creed is popular, then what I like can't be as important. There's some sort of zero sum game that's very American. Yeah, and I think that uh, that attitude is, if anything, really vestigial. I mean, you, I, I think that. You saw it a lot in the you know, 90s, early aughts in particular, in these years before the internet made it so possible to share anything really mm -hmm. widely. And then it, it made a little bit of sense. I still think that it was ultimately specious to look at something popular as detracting from you. But it's also like, if this band is crazy, stupid, popular, my band is probably not being signed to that record label because there's only so many mm. record deals to go around. And so then in that situation, you're, I guess, reduced to these <clears throat> less effective DIY networks to get your stuff out into the world. And then it really does feel like something is being taken away from you by someone else's popularity. I still think it's a specious way to look at popularity, but at least the numbers kind of check out in that scenario. But at this juncture, you know, anybody with a Bandcamp account can theoretically yeah. have their music be heard by millions of people. It's you're no longer operating within the same limits. And at that stage, it becomes especially specious to look at something that's really popular and see it as detracting from your own products. Like it, 
a single person could listen to both very easily. It could be yeah. put in front of people very easily. You're not really working with those same limitations anymore. Yeah, I think that's that's interesting. I, I think sort of the ability to curate your own experience has really changed things. And um, I think that that's why your book is so critical because there are people who are saying, you know, listen, I, I have uh, – you know, I, I watched the new uh, Twin Peaks. I, I, you know, I listened to the soundtrack. I like the chromatics. I, I, I have good taste. I go to the art museum, but I do still have Creed on, you know, uh, my computer because I used to have a Kazaa account and now I have Spotify. Yeah, Spotify is just like legalized Kazaa, I think, you know, yeah. and, <laughs> and, you, and you just, because it, it still screws the, the, the uh, producers and things like that, you know, people make the music, but um, you get this sort of sense that, um, it, Ignoring what you like in a world that's all about how you like is actually like a sense of self-deprivation that one is not rewarded and two is actually like self-punishing. And right. there's something deeply dark about that. And I, I felt like, like your book got around that. Yeah. I think that uh, the attitude I hope to combat is I'm just going to come right out and say, this is an attitude that's really prevalent in the circles that I run in. You know, a lot of punk kids, DIY kids, ex-DIY kids, we're all in our 30s now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's people who came up with that self-imposed sense of cultural deprivation because mm -hmm. the stuff that we used to really love never got popular. And I think that what we never bothered to ask ourselves is like, did we ever want our stuff to even be popular yeah. or did we just not want anything to be popular? Did yeah. we just take this David versus Goliath attitude towards the stuff that was popular for no reason at all? And I think you're right about that, that self punishment angle. I think that's what it becomes is you are on this stupid quest to be the smartest guy in the room and that's the only quest that is served by like a refusal to like Creed. If you do like Creed, <laughs> yeah. like obviously if you don't like them, you know, Mazel tov, go forth yeah. and prosper. But if this is something that your gut instinct is to like it, and then you refuse to just like it. And the reason is that you're in service to this intellectual instincts that you think overrules your response to art. I don't see why that needs to be. I don't, yeah. you know, nothing is served by that. Nothing yeah. and no one. I mean, it, I mean, if you're going to really live in the neoliberal world where we're like, we're constantly in like this video game world where we're like our culture bar goes up, our health bar goes up. We did some wellness today. We did, you know, we made somebody, right? We, we're constantly like video gaming ourselves into this like virtual world. And then yet you're like, this bar actually doesn't go up or down. It doesn't matter. No one cares. It doesn't, you don't get to, to, put on an extra skin in the game. You don't get to, you know, you don't get an extra weapon. You don't get hit points. It's just, you're just in this situation where you're like torturing yourself and the simulation moves on. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five One chapter that really popped out to me um, And possibly just because I came of age around the time of Victoria's Secret Sense And sort of Bath and Body Works Sense Is uh, the the one that you discussed uh, What was, it's the particular scent And 
Warm vanilla sugar. I, <laughs> that was my shit. It is. That is a, a, a particularly evocative. It smells like summer to me. You know, it's it smells like uh, cuffing season. It's you know, it it is a certain <laughs> sort of sort of thing. And it's also, I think, those scents were like sort of transitory for me. And I'm 41, so I was in the period where I saw girls in college that I went to college with wear 100 percent things that were looked like bags. And then come into low rise jeans, like at the same time, right? And it was there was sort of coexisting subcultures that existed right around that time. And there were kind of backlashes to each other, or, or you know, you know, in some sort of like non tangential way. And I remember when I started smelling sweet pea, and I remember started the the sweet vanilla sugar and all these different sort of the cucumber melon. And it was a different evocative experience. It was more in your face. And I think much of the discussion about that was that those scents were tacky, right? Because prior to that, you had CK1, CKB, sort of these androgynous scents that, you know, let's not talk about Drucker and Orr, but that's, you know. <laughs> the ultimate tacky cologne. Yeah. But, but you know what? You know when it's in the room. It's, that's, you know, that's yeah. important. Yeah. And uh, I thought that that sort of that chapter, and this is, I think, that chapter alone is worth reading the book because it, the, when you, the way you discuss sort of the evocative nature of scent really popped off the page. Yeah. And I think that uh, scent in particular is actually a good like hook to hang a lot of my thinking on because it speaks to the way that trends are totally arbitrary. You know, they, they are decided for us from, by, people we'll never speak to or meet whose logic we do not understand. And these trends like descend on us and we don't always even know that we're partaking of them really. Like by the time I entered middle school, which is about when the dawn of the bath and body Works supremacy was, <laughs> I didn't know that there was a time when those smells weren't everywhere. Like yeah. I just assumed, Oh, okay. I'm 12 years old now, and this is what stuff smells like, and this is probably what this locker room has always yeah. smelled like, you know, since <laughs> time immemorial. We aren't yeah. conscious of partaking of trends, and, you know, it still yeah. gets me. I mean, my, my sense of style hasn't changed in a long time, but mm. once in a blue moon, I'll see something on, you know, Sheen or AliExpress or whatever that looks really cute, and I I don't even fully understand what little neurons of my brain are firing off when I look <laughs> at something that's being relentlessly pitched to me as yeah. on trend and I feel myself drawn to it. Like yeah. I don't understand what that response is. And I understood it much less as a kid. And I think with smells, it, it sticks out how arbitrary it all is. It yeah. really sticks out that, you know, how is it possible for human beings to think that something smells good one year and then it just all of a sudden you never <laughs> smell it again from no, the time you're like 15 it's on. Like, it's like changing the composition of the air. I literally, yeah. I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're saying like, okay, now hydrogen's in, you know, oxygen's out and that's how it feels. And it, you know, you could tell, um, one of the th the experiences that I really like to go to, is like going to high end stores and then going into, low-end store and just smelling the differences in and what the smell is supposed to tell you about yourself yeah and i think 
there was a time, and I think this is why we mourn for this time of the Bath and Body Works, is that there was a time where every woman wanted to smell slightly similar. And it was, there was a, you know, sort of, you know, maybe back to the Avon days. That was like the last time that happened or Mary Kay or whatever. This is like fascinating that then we, then from there we get transitioned into Sephora which is like a much more sort of like bespoke experience. You know, yeah. we have any kind of woman you are, you're, we have it for you or any kind of sort of non-binary person we have for you. Um, but I, I think you zeroing in on that time is really important. Um, it's like the yeah. last of the monoculture almost. Yeah. I mean, that, that was probably the last time that you'll have, you know, every girl wanting to smell the same, every girl <laughs> wanting to watch the same movies. Yeah. Like, it's with the ability to disseminate so much more stuff so much more quickly now. I can't imagine we're going to see something like that again. I can't imagine we're going to hit another time when like every single person in the world knew who Anna Nicole Smith was. <laughs> like, is that really going to happen again? I mean, it's, I guess the Kardashians sort of, but it's just, it's not the same at all to me. You better move your feet if you don't want to eat a meal. Coffee City. If you don't want to go to Fish City, you better detour around my town. Cause I'll grab you by the hair of the head and lift you off of the ground. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the Jersey Shore, both the show and the place. Uh, it's a place that was like very important for me. I went to a Philadelphia area college and lived on the East Coast most of my life in the sort of the trashier part of the north of, of the northeast and um so the jersey shore itself like as a physical place had like meaning um you know it it was a place where you went and you could kind of be unbridled i remember i actually went to my brother's bachelor party the weekend the trump towers were closed that trump is trump tower trump hotel in atlantic city was closing you could get a roll of toilet paper we just like went for a for a, a lark and uh spent the weekend there um the show is actually quite fascinating. And I know that you'd watched it with your father, who's now passed. Mm-hmm. And I think like that's quite beautiful the, the way you've talked about that in the past. Um, what is it about that show that allows sort of us to get in touch with like our tacky side? You know, I remember when it first came out, it made such an incredible impression on Americans because I think up until that point, we obviously had had reality TV for years at that juncture, but the people on those TV shows still mostly gestured towards being respectable in some way. Yeah. Like they were partying and they were hot tubbing with each other and, you know, making out or whatever. But I still think there was always this conceit that we were watching fundamentally normal people. In fact, I think that's what the appeal was supposed to be was we're watching normal people performing extraordinary behaviors. And that allowed us to think about how we would behave if, you know, you locked us in a house with eight other people of roughly our same demographic makeup. Like that was the appeal for a long time. And then Jersey Shore came out and there was no longer any pretense that these were real sane people. They were real people, but they had been taken off the leash (laughs) in the most satisfying way. And like, that was... That was what made such a smash about it, I think. Like, we we didn't even know that we were bored of people trying to seem normal <laughs> on TV until they stopped doing or, it. Or in general. Or in general. Yeah. I, mean, I, think, <laughs> I think that um, the thing about 
it's like if you took like the real world is if you make a zoo, the Jersey Shore is if you make a zoo and you turn it loose on the world. Yeah, and like this, <laughs> and I—that's what I thought was great about it. I mean, I, I had rubber. I, 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 during that time, I think I had been at a party with some of those people because that's kind of like the Jersey uh, Shore people. Yes, yes. So one of my I, friends grew up next door to one of them. Yeah, which was I just every time I hear about proximity to the Jersey Shore people, <laughs> I, I get all excited. Like, well, are they really like that? Yeah. I mean, it's yes. <laughs> I mean, never, <laughs> in fact, I think the thing that is lost there, in a way, is that there is sort of a parallel uh, structure of masculinity, how it presents femininity, how it presents, and also, um, I think the what makes Jersey Shore really interesting is the people are actually not bad; they're not actually not really. bad, not really, and they're just operating outside of like sort of like Anglo-Saxon sort of proper norms, right? But they have a better code of honor than, than most people on leftist Twitter. I'll tell you that much or, or whatever. I kind of yeah. agree. Like there's a real, there's an obvious code there. They, yeah. they make it explicit at points. Yeah. They have rules for how to yeah. engage with the world. They yeah. have guidelines for behavior. Yeah. They, they are misbehaving them? a bit, but yeah. yeah, they repeat this shit. Yeah. Add yeah. fucking nauseam. It's yeah. delightful. It's, yeah. I mean, it's part of the appeal. Is and they have discussions where breaches occur. Right. So yeah. whatever, like, it's like, that's my girl. There's a discussion right. about it. It's actually less socially violent in a way than sort of like how you say, like, oh, I just don't talk to that group of friends anymore. No, they're like, no, yeah. we're working through this. This is a family. That, I think that was another big part of the appeal, actually, was like people weren't just loud when they were partying. Like people were loud about everything. People were loud about accountability for their mistakes. People were being <laughs> loud about not wanting to show up to work. Like the, it was a loudness that spoke to the stuff we want to say to each other all the time that yeah. most of us are too cowardly to say. And then it leads to, you know, at the extreme end, as you say, people just refusing to speak to old friends because, yeah. you know, there was some breach of the code of conduct that yeah. never gets addressed. And yeah. I think that it's really satisfying to watch real people on a show that we know is reality TV just yelling at each other when they're upset as opposed to, you know, the little gossipy bullshit that you see on so many other reality yeah. shows. Like you see that shit on Real Housewives all the time. People talking shit about a woman who's like 30 seconds away from walking into the room and then they just stop. <laughs> I, that's not the kind of shit I no. like. I want to see people like hollering at each other because yeah. that's, I holler when I'm upset. <laughs> no, no, it's real. And I, I think in some ways, um, the, the the two different kinds of reality shows show sort of an authentic Americanness, and I think that the Jersey Shore is actually more authentically American and actually uh, more of a sort of socially indigenous culture. Like it's like it makes more sense given the re material reality. Yeah. These sort of other shows they kind of are so disjointed from that reality that they um, it becomes such that you're like. You know this is getting videotaped. What do you think is happening here? You know, I mean, it's 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 beyond sort of like the the realm of of understanding for normal people, um, because in most instances, you and I think this goes back to the rootless cosmopolitanness is that <laughs> is that many of us can leave where we're from. Most cannot, and I right. think that dealing working through these issues helps people understand how to deal with both situations. You've walked out so many times and left me with a worried mind
confused, alone, not knowing what to do. Then you come back and I forgive and heartaches end, but memories live each time I turn a lighter shade of blue. Yeah, I think that's another thing that social media really hamstrung our ability to just talk to each other, like have those uncomfortable conversations with our friends when we're upset about something because social media made the option very easy and explicit to just cut someone out if you're upset with them. And I don't really think that's an option that should be available to us. I mean, writ large, like outside the bounds of social media. Yeah. A person who fucks up in their town might have the option to move to another town, but by and large, people don't have that option. That's not something people want to do. They want to stay where they have roots, make it work, solve problems. And I, I think that was something that was always really satisfying to watch on TV for that reason, probably. So I give it to the, the discussion of sort of the demise of social culture and the sort of third space that we deal with in modern society. I wanted to get, cause I want to, I want to give you some time to, to go out and promote your book elsewhere as well. But uh, I wanted to address uh, the idea of the decline of the American shopping mall. Um, and, um, you know, being from the sort of Northeast, uh, growing up near King of Prussia, which is one of the, I would say, one of the best malls yeah. ever. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a really big fun. one, King of Prussia. It's, it's a big one, and it's there's a lot of quality stuff, good sales. There used to be. Uh, it's a Simon Mall, and if you're from a mall-bearing area, you will know what that means. Uh, but uh, when you discuss the mall as like a space, and you, you've done this on uh, your podcast, Low Culture Boil, and where, where can we find Low Culture Boil? Patreon.com slash low culture boil. Please give us money. I uh, thoroughly ever encourage everyone to do that. Uh, Amber Rawlings uh, and uh, no Amber Rawlings, Amber Rollo and uh, Casey <laughs> Rawlings are the, our co-hosts. And they're, they're just, they're just fantastic, brilliant, funny women. Um, it's, it's one of the podcasts that I actually take the time out of my uh, busy uh, trying to work at, while raising babies life. Um, but you discussed the the dying of the mall. And I actually think that the mall was a space where people had to meet each other and really do things. I I'm not anti online shopping. Like I like to go and pick a very specific thing. I'm very tall. I'm six foot five and I have a very long inseam and I, to find pants, it's very hard. Mm -hmm. So like oftentimes the mall is actually not suitable for me, but I do like the experience. Um, What do you think about the death of the mall? And what do you think, the impact of that is on sort of our acceptance of culture outside of our own. So, yeah, I think that's hugely relevant. I always think about it in terms of like listening to Spotify versus driving around listening to the radio. Yeah. Because I have noticed as I've become more dependent on Spotify that I'm listening to much less new music because it just doesn't make itself known to me anymore. You can't replicate that experience of just, driving around with the radio on, like half paying attention to it, and something comes on all of a sudden that you realize you really like. That's a very enlivening experience, I think. And I also think it translates to the experience of going to the mall. Like it's not strictly about consumerism there, of course, but there is something to be said for the experience of going to a place in person surrounding yourself with other people and like human noise, human activity, 
and looking at stuff that is maybe not the stuff you even want, but I still think it's enriching to, to see all the stuff of human activity laid out in front of you like that. That's something that you're not able to replicate when you go to a, you know, when you go online to go shopping and you already know what you want, you make a beeline for it, you order it in a week, it's at your house. That's very convenient. And in many cases, somewhat necessary, but still it's, it's not the same experience by a stretch. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something we might not see again, at least for a long time, because at least the mall was probably allowed to exist the way it did exist because it was so friendly to the larger consumerist yeah. project. And then I, the fact that like teenagers could just show up there, spend a dollar on a soda and hang out for three hours. Like that was immaterial. The place was still making money. Yeah. That doesn't seem super possible on that scale anymore. It's interesting. I, there's a, traditionally we live in, in Toronto, which is a very, very big city. You know, it's like the fourth largest city in North America or something. Right. Uh, with the general area around it, it's almost as big as New York city. Uh, there's some big malls and there's a mall. I remember the first uh, mall I went to during COVID was the Yorkdale mall. It was very well spaced out and it was in the food court. And I remember that liberating experience of sort of being back amongst people that didn't look like me. It was very ethnically diverse. It was very much um, sort of people from all over kind of going out and just trying to regain some acceptance in the world. Like yeah. this is like humanity, really. Yeah, You're humanity, trying to right? be among yeah. other people yeah. and be human with them. That's yeah. what the mall is. And I, I remember getting the 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 mall Chinese food and it wasn't Panda Express, which I is delicious, but this was like a sort of a higher end sort of place. And I remember just thinking, I I felt a relief. I felt I felt sort of like I was not this isolated, curated experience. I was myself in society. And now I lived downtown in Toronto. There's plenty of people. I go to the Korean grocery store. I go all over, right? But uh, I finally felt that release, and I realized that there is as much as the mall culture is sort of weird, and and who knows if you were like if it was a drug, you would prescribe it. You know, like if you look back, you're like, would I prescribe that drug? I don't know, but <laughs> but it worked, and um, it really it was a relief. And we, my wife and I, we felt like, oh, this is great. I don't know if these sort of digital spaces that we have can replace that. And in fact, I think they take some of that sort of acceptance. The you know, when you're putting your garbage away and you're like accidentally bump into somebody, you say, I'm sorry. There's no, I'm sorry on on the internet. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think that level of curation has lots of upsides. I mean, it is nice to have this space where if I want to, I only have to talk to people that I'm cool with. Yeah. There is something to be said for that. But I think that when COVID made it our entire universe, <laughs> we all developed a lot of bad social habits. And yeah. at the same time, there is something to be said for a space that we can't curate. When you go to the mall, you have no control over who else is there, what people are going to say to you, who you're going to see. Like Those spaces are really important, I think. And the sheer size and scale of a shopping mall makes it, I think, overwhelming in a good way. I think yeah. it feels really rejuvenating to me in particular to be in that much human activity, like in the midst of it, generating my own human activity. I mean, it's... It's a recharge. Yeah.
No, I think that's right. And I think, I think the, um, I, how can I say this? It's 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 almost like the idea of, and I'm gonna this is gonna sound a little out there, but it's fine. Um, I think it's like cosmic energy versus sort of like the Tesla battery, right? The Tesla battery, you go to a specific place that's a specific charger that you're plugging into a specific thing for a specific time. But there are energies out there that you don't know you need to recharge. And I think yeah. the mall, I think the marketplaces in, you know, sort of Europe do this. I think a lot of different places where you can go and sort of be idle while also in, interacting. Um, I think that's, it's a, it's a scary that that's lost. And I, and I think it's uh, scary that we're losing a lot of sort of the baseline culture, you know, not that I'm, I'm going to promote of monoculture by any means. I think that's been dangerous in some ways, but um I, I think that we need to kind of find those things where we can sort of come to uh, at ease uh, and, you know, get around them. One last question before I let you go. Uh, I'm going to ask you about Let's Go Brandon. If you don't... <laughs> That and, is the stupidest shit I ever heard of in my life. Yes, so, I know what you're talking yeah, about. So I, the reason I ask is, is that... Uh, is that I voted for Joe Biden. I'm just going to say it. I, much to the to dismay of much of my many of my friends who are, are who are as far to the left as I am. Um, but I lived in Pennsylvania, and I was I did it for my mom. My mom's a Democratic committee woman. I had to do it. I had to send him an absentee ballot. But um, I think Let's Go Brandon's a little funny because it started at a NASCAR race, and it, where they were saying "fuck Joe Biden," and then they said, "Oh, hear them." They're saying, "Let's go, Brandon." That's kind of funny. Oh, okay, that is that's, really funny. Actually, that I is didn't pretty know funny. That. When you know the origin, it's actually that's why I asked because it's it's actually comes out of tacky culture. Is yeah. that NASCAR is like like you know exceedingly tacky, tacky culture? Um, but the interesting thing about that is that it gets people bad. And I, after a year or two of "fuck Trump," you know that we all said. It, why is it this particular thing, do you think, that makes people of taste so angry? I, hmm, how do I want to put this? I think that the sorts of people who are really into Joe Biden and do not want to hear his name besmirched, they especially do not want to hear his name besmirched by the sorts of people who go to a NASCAR race. Yeah. I think that that feels insulting in a way that is just not going to fly for them. And that's, you know, that's a real looking down on other people attitude that is a, a big turnoff about the Democratic Party. There's, you know, that that's the sorts of people who have to be the smartest guy in the room at all costs. They don't even need to get anything done as far as they're concerned. They just need to seem smart and well-mannered and make a good impression at all costs. And so a chance that began as something misheard at a NASCAR race is like the most undignified insult they can imagine. They don't like it coming from the left either. They don't like it, that sort of fuck Joe Biden attitude coming from people to the left of them. They don't like it from people coming to the right. And as best I can tell, whoever it's coming from, the reasoning is like, you should be grateful. We're saving your asses with middle management like it's it's just they they see it as an attack on dignity on a dignity that is totally unearned but they still cling to it yeah 
I think I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think that people thought, you know, everything's going to be over, and and I think that you know they thought, oh, COVID will be over, the fighting will be over, we don't have to deal with these chuds anymore, and you know, that, then there's some sort of like sort of like clever cheat code to get into people's heads that they didn't think was available. There's no tweets from Donald Trump anymore. There's you know, there's Let's Go Brandon. Well, you've been making your brags around town that you've been a love of my man, but the man I love when he picks up trash. He puts it in a garbage can. Um, one last thing I want to just mention um, is the the write up in in Grub Street. Uh, I thought it was excellent. I, in fact, I just got a email from the New York Times Cooking, uh, which if you don't subscribe to the New York Times Cooking uh, newsletter, you should. Um, and they had a great mention of the write up in Grub Street. Um, you talk about eating a surprise cheeseburger, and I, there's a quote <laughs> there. It says, "I'm a grease goblin, horny beyond belief for cholesterol." <laughs> <laughs> I just ate a cheeseburger last night, actually. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought it was. I, I I love a cheeseburger. There's a. It's funny. Um, I live in like rural Newfoundland, and you know sort of like I can go get a cheeseburger if I want to. It's not like crazy, but, but we live about 40 minutes from most stuff. We found out, and this is after a year of living here, that there's a, a place that makes the best cheeseburger in the world about two minutes from here. And, um, it was, it really brought me back. You know, I'm living in the seaside town miles from sort of like the urban metropolises that I'm used to living in and in the East coast. Um, but the cheeseburger brought me back. And um, my last question for you, and before we plug your book one more time, is what makes a good cheeseburger? Uh, okay, so you don't want to get too fancy with it, to my mind. I think it's got to be American cheese, cheddar at most. They're yeah. the only cheeses that melt properly. I don't want to see anything fancier than like a Martin's potato roll as the bun. Yeah. I don't really like when they get cute with the toppings either. I don't, I I don't, don't like the brioche buns. I don't like them. Brioche buns are annoying. Yeah. Uh, bacon never really adds what it's supposed no. to, to a burger. I'm not sure why I can never yeah. actually taste it really. I, I'll, I'll tell you two, two reasons. And, I, and then I'm sorry to explain <laughs> is that, that one is the, is the pull of the bacon is it's either too crunchy such that it interferes with the sort of juiciness of the burger. And second, the, there is a pull issue that if it's undercooked, that, that it actually pulls creating a situation where the lettuce becomes in your, in your teeth. That's why (laughs) that all tracks. Yeah. So that, and that's why you got to stick to the basic toppings, lettuce, tomato, onion. I like pickles. That's it. I don't want to see anything else other than cheese. Yeah. That's correct. I, I thank you for that that insight, and I, I think that that's great. Where can we find your book, and where can we find your podcast? Uh, you can find my book, Tacky, Love Letters to the Worst Culture We Have to Offer, possibly at your local bookstore if you have a good bookstore. You can also get it from the Penguin Random House website. Uh, Amazon, if you must. Bookshop is better. Uh, you can also find my podcast, Low Culture Boil, at uh, twitter.com slash lowcultureboil, patreon.com slash lowcultureboil. We do one free episode and one patrons-only episode every week. Uh, and it's just a really fun time on there. We're always having fun. So come listen to us laugh about cheeseburgers some more. Looking 
Hey, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. Um, you know, I think that this book is well worth a read. I think that if you think that you're stressed out, you think that the the, the lack of connection to the, to the world is getting you down. If you think that you don't have enough time, this is something you need to read so you remember just how to be a human again. Thank you so much, Rex. Thank you for having me. What they call